35 years ago, if you had said, Kim, you're going to be married in the Catholic Church, and you're going to have three kids and raise them Catholic, I probably would have laughed. I was in middle school at the time. It was not even something that was crossing my mind. Marriage wasn't, and definitely marrying a Catholic wasn't. And 25 years ago, if you had said to me, someday you will be unapologetically and proudly pro-life, I would have laughed. Because at that time in my life, I was writing letters to the editor of my college paper, pretty much vilifying pro-life folks and the pro-life stance. Very much in favor of the right of a woman to choose abortion. And I also signed any and all narrow petitions that I could. So if you'd said, hey, Kim, guess what? 25 years from now, you're going to be Catholic and you're going to be pro-life, I would have laughed. But I didn't really get there from here easily. And when I think about how did I get there and get where I am today, the only answer I have for you is the grace of God. There's no other way it could have been. So we'll go back to the beginning and then get here from there. But in the meantime, you need to know where I, how I ended up there before I got here. Have you ever seen the movie Mad Max? Uh, not, not the first one, the, uh, Thunderdome, Beyond Thunder, what, what was that one? With, with Tina Turner. There was a guy in the movie who says, no matter where you go, there you are. And that's what I feel like right now. No matter where you go, there you are. Well, back in the middle of last century, or roughly thereabouts, it was a little later than the middle, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. My mother, Gay Shalanta, who was Gay Livermore, when she was growing up, was born in Ann Arbor and raised there. And she was raised um, in the Presbyterian Church. That was her background. And I don't think I'm misstating things to say that church for her, as she was growing up, was more, you did it on Sunday mornings because it was expected, and it was more cultural than perhaps it was from the heart or from the soul. And she has done a great deal of genealogy and looking up her background. Most of her background is from Great Britain, from England and Wales and Scotland. So if you'd like to say white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, you pretty much describe my mother, especially as she was growing up. Not that she was a bad person or meant anything badly by growing up Protestant and only looking at it as a Sunday type thing. It's just what she knew, and it's who she was. My father, on the other hand, Stephen Shalanta, grew up in Weirton, West Virginia. And if any of you are familiar with Steubenville, Ohio, then you know that just across the river from Steubenville is Weirton, West Virginia. And how can that be? Well, there's this little spike that rises up between Ohio and Pennsylvania, and that's where Weirton is. If you go a little further north, the hometown of Lou Holtz is there, but Dad didn't grow up there, he grew up in Weirton. And who would have thought, after all those years of going to visit Grandma in Weirton, and going across the river to Steubenville, because they had a better mall than Weirton did, um, that someday I would really come to appreciate Franciscan University at Steubenville. Not that I've ever been there, just known people who've taught there, or have read books by people who've taught. Well, Dad, when he was raised in Weirton, was not raised Protestant. He wasn't raised Catholic either. He grew up Russian Orthodox. So how those two came to meet, well, again, that would be the grace of God. 
dad grew up Russian Orthodox, and as he would tell me, it was really hard to appreciate. All the services were, all the liturgies were in Russian. And you think, if you, any of you remember Mass in Latin, or have ever been to Latin Mass, and you know kind of how hard that can be, can you imagine trying to understand Russian when you're eight years old? At the time, he said he really didn't get much out of it. And I can, I can probably believe that, and I can appreciate that. But something stuck with him. He went to the University of Michigan to college, so you're kind of getting a clue how mom and dad might have met. Mom's best friend, Shirley, was in the pharmacy program at the U of M, and so was my dad. And dad needed a place to stay. He needed a place to live. And Shirley said, hey, I have some friends who rent out their their attic, if you will. It's got a, a nice bedroom and a sitting room. And so mom ended up interviewing dad to see if it would be okay for him to stay there. So my grandmother, God rest her soul, at the time was in the hospital with cancer. And so mom went to the hospital because you know she'd done the interview for grandma and was telling her all about this guy who'd applied. And grandma said, does he have any references? And mom said, well, surely sent him. And then grandma said, well, that's all we need to know. Take him on. So that's how my mother and dad met, was through her friend Shirley, who was in the same program with dad. They were married on March 26, 1960, at First Presbyterian, the church that mom had grown up in. Now dad, having moved from Weirton to Ann Arbor, really didn't have an opportunity to practice his faith as a Russian Orthodox. There was probably something in Detroit had he looked, but there was, really wasn't anything in Ann Arbor at the time. So he fell away from practicing as a Russian Orthodox. So mom and dad got married, and a year and a half later I was born, and I was christened, as they call it, or baptized, in First Presbyterian in Ann Arbor when I was a few months old. I don't remember a whole lot about church until I was about seven years old. And I know we went because it was important, because, you know, mom, the cultural thing, you just, you, that's what you do. You go to church on Sunday. And so we moved from Ann Arbor when Dad finished his Ph.D. to uh, Corvallis, Oregon, where Oregon State was. Dad taught there for several years. Don't remember much about it, just a dog down the street named Shadrach, a black lab. I think that's fairly appropriate for a black lab to be named Shadrach. We moved from there to Evansville, Indiana, where Dad um, was a senior research scientist for Mead Johnson. And that's where I have some vague memories of going to Sunday school at Aldersgate Methodist Church. I remember a lady who would sing solos often on Sunday morning, and I thought, could we just get on with it so I can get out of here and play? I also remember, and this was my other memory, Sunday school. So if you grew up Catholic, you had CCD. I had Sunday school. So you'd go to Sunday school, and the big thing I remember were the flannel boards that they would tell the stories on the Bible stories. And they'd have the little characters cut out, and they'd place the character on and tell you about it. And it was kind of, they kind of moved slow, that's what I remembered. It's like, pick up the pace, let's have a little action. When I got older, we didn't have the flannel boards anymore, but we did things that were pretty cool. But the, by this time, I was probably second or third grade, and we were in Texas, and Austin, Dad was teaching at UT in Austin. I remember learning how to memorize scripture. And I do think that is one of the greatest gifts you can have or that you can give your children is to teach them to memorize scripture and for you to do it. I don't remember everything I learned. I wish I did. I wish I were better at it. 
But I remember the chart that we had and the gold stars that you could earn by taking a verse and coming to your teacher and handing the, piece, the verse on a piece of paper and then telling them what the verse was. So you'd pick short ones like, Jesus wept. Hey, got a gold star. Slap it up there on the chart. Move on. Yeah, I did, wasn't really into memorizing Psalm 119. Have any of you read Psalm 119? It is the very longest in the entire Bible. I did not memorize it. I think I would have picked Bishop Swain's psalm. What, two verses? Psalm 110? Is that how many verses it is, Chris? It is, two verses. See, something like that I would have picked. At nine, we moved to Brookings, South Dakota. Dad took a position at South Dakota State. We started off at the Presbyterian Church. And within a year, probably less than that, we were at the United Methodist Church in Brookings. And I remember Sunday school. I remember, and I bet this young lady over in the, with the pink shirt on will appreciate this. Every Sunday after Sunday school, before I went to church, we had coffee and cookies. It was the best. You went down for fellowship in the fellowship hall. Now, as a Catholic, I'm appalled that I ate before going to a worship service, but that's not a big thing when you're growing up United Methodist. Uh, people were very friendly. There was a very active youth group, a lot of kids my own age, and within a few years, and I remember at 13 being confirmed, but I also remember thinking, there's gotta be something a little more than this. There was always something I was looking for. Now, as a kid, at home, I read a lot. I still like to read. I read almost, you know, something almost every day. I like fiction, I like nonfiction, I like spiritual reading. But mom always had this cupboard in the living room, in the family room, actually. And in there, she would keep issues of magazines of events that meant a lot to her. So when you think the 60s, you know, we had the issues of Life and Time magazine that talked about the assassination of President Kennedy and then Martin Luther King Jr. because that happened on my mother's birthday. But mother was a romantic. She loved romance. And if you remember the 60s, there were three White House weddings. The two, pre the two daughters of President Johnson, Lucy and Linda, and Tricia Nixon all got married while their fathers were president. So I'd go through and I'd look at these and I, I thought they were pretty cool. And I realized later on that there was one I kept going back to. This is not the original, I probably destroyed it. But it was this issue of Life magazine about Lucy's wedding. She's kneeling. She was raised disciple of, disciples of Christ and converted to the Catholic Church before she married Patrick Nugent was kept pretty quiet at the time. And they were married at the shrine, the Basilica of the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., which had just been finished. Now, the pictures in here were pretty interesting. First of all, we don't kneel in the United Methodist Church, or at least we didn't then, and I don't think they do now. But the pictures of the Basilica, the photos, were absolutely beautiful. I'd never seen a church that size. 
ever in my life. And then I've never seen, you know, 14 bridesmaids or ever, however many either. And then there were more pictures of this church, which just captured my imagination because it was so beautiful and so big. And I've never seen, you know, ministers dressed in cassocks like that. They wore like black choir robes. So I kept coming back to this, and it was always very interesting to me to see the differences, the kneeling, all the priests. And there was even, I think, a photo in here where you see incense, and if not in this one, it was the, the Time magazine. But I would say, if I had to pinpoint a time that the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith started to really be of interest to me, it was looking at this magazine. So I would say how Life Magazine brought me into the Catholic faith, or how it started my journey. Growing up, every Sunday was to church, Sunday school, confirmation in eighth grade. And I remember we took a, a profile test to see what kind of faith perhaps we were drawn to or style of worship. And I don't remember what I was, but I just remember Lisa Hoppinen was going to be Catholic. Nobody else ended up Catholic. It was Lisa. I don't think I did. But I was like, wow. Oh, yeah. That church where they got the, the smoke and the incense and they kneel. Oh. Didn't really know a lot of Catholics. The few kids I did, they didn't have Sunday school. They had this, whatever the CCD was, and I didn't know what CCD meant until just a few years ago. What does CCD mean for any of you out here? Confraternity for Christian Doctrine. Yeah. But nobody could tell me what it was. And then I'd ask them what they did, and it didn't really sound very much different than what I was doing in the United Methodist Church in the 70s. It was, you know, how do you feel? How do you feel about this or that? You can feel a lot of different things, and you can change your mind from week to week. But I didn't really get a lot of answers about what made their church different from, from mine. When I was 16, a junior in high school, I became friends with a gal who's Catholic, Teresa Keller. And I would go to Mass with her on Saturday evenings. And then we would go out and get into mischief. We didn't really, we didn't break, we didn't break too many laws. We really didn't. But we did what most teenagers do when you're bored in a small town in South Dakota. But we always went to Mass first, and then I could tell my folks, I've been to church, don't have to go with you. <laughs> yeah, I went with Teresa. Okay, we were up to no good, but I like going to Mass. I did. She would go up and receive communion. I'd sit there in the pew, because she told me I couldn't. Why not? Well, you're not Catholic, so? Because in the United Methodist Church, they have what they call an open table, and anybody can come up and receive communion. So I was like, all right, whatever. So I'd sit there, and after a while, I started kneeling when she'd kneel. And she told me that what they received was Jesus when she went up to communion. And it was like, no, it's not. It's a symbol. Anybody knows that? It's a piece of bread. Because when I would go up to communion four times a year in the United Methodist Church, 
it was a loaf of bread that they'd break in half and you'd pull a piece out and they'd have one of those 1970s pottery chalices with grape juice and you'd dip it in and hope you didn't drip grape juice on you. So it was a little strange to me that not only did she go every week, and she's, it's not really Jesus, come on, it's a symbol, everybody knows that, but we didn't argue too much about it because she couldn't really tell me why it was Jesus. She just would say it was and get really mad if I kept pushing her. But she only received this wafer thing. She never had, what do you mean it's the body and blood of Christ? All you got was this, this is the body part. She could never really answer my questions, but I still liked going. It still meant something. And you know, even when I was in the middle of being really rebellious as a teenager, I could count on the mass. It didn't change. Oh, sure, the readings changed, and maybe the, the prayers a little bit, but the order of the mass stayed the same. And I could count on it. And even in a college town like Brookings, there were decent homilies. Well, I called them sermons because that's what I thought they were at the time. Now, at the United Methodist Church, we would have dialogue sermons where the minister and the associate minister would do a dialogue reading from maybe the uh, screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis. Not, not bad. I mean, it's good content. It's a great book. But I never really think of a dialogue homily. I just can't imagine Father Morgan and Father Zilverberg doing that. But we'd get things like that, or we'd have the youth group, which I was part of. We'd do the service on Sunday. How about that? I was part of what we called the worship caravan a couple of summers when I was a teenager. It was youth from all over the state coming together. And we would develop a service with several ministers and chaperones, and then we would go around the state, and I mean West River too, with the buses, etc., and we'd be invited into these churches to present Sunday worship. I can't imagine that happening in our diocese with the Catholic Church. And I remember learning some really good songs, and I, and I still remember them to this day because we had to memorize them, and you know music is something that really stays within your memory. And as you hear songs or you hear hymns, it will hearken you back to things like high school or a summer on worship caravan. I remember one of the songs we sang was Peace Like a River. I don't know if you know that one. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river in my soul. And on and on. I've got love like a river. And I've got joy like a river. And the other song, and I didn't know it at the time, was going to be part of my favorites for all the saints. I will say that the way we sang for all the saints is the way I still like to sing it. It was upbeat. It was peppy. We moved, man, when we sang that. Because sometimes when you sing for all the saints in the Catholic Church, it's kind of slow. It's kind of funereal. And it's a great song. It's a great hymn. Still love it. Look forward to All Saints Day, because you get to sing that one. So we did this, and there was a point 
we did the scripture from Isaiah um, where he's come to set the people free, or he's quoting Isaiah about coming to set the people free, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the, the lame will leap for joy. And as we sang the song that was set to those words or the words that were set to the music, we had Jesus. And being that we were United Methodist and we were very feminist, we had a, a girl playing Jesus. Again, just can't see that happening <laughs> where I am now. So Teresa and I got to be friends, and she graduated from high school a year ahead of me. And I'm a senior in high school now, and we're still hanging out, getting into mischief on Saturday evenings. And Christmas rolls around, my senior year, and she gives me a present. I didn't put it behind the podium. She gave me a rosary, the very first rosary I ever got. I can't really use it because it's missing a bead, and I'm just a little too freaked out about having a bead missing to use it. But this is the very first rosary I ever got. And when she said, well, you want to pray it, it was like, you want me to pray to Mary? What if lightning strikes me through the window? I don't know. Okay. So we said, the, you know, we started with the sign of the cross. I'm cool with that. My dad did it, only he did it backwards. You know, if you're Orthodox, you go right to left. If you're Catholic, you go left to right. More on that later. We started praying this rosary. And we got all the way through it. We did all those Hail Marys. And it felt so weird to pray to Mary. Like I was dissing Jesus. I really wasn't comfortable with the rosary for a long time, but you know what? It survived college. It survived grad school. It survived moving back to South Dakota from North Carolina. It survived the apartments I lived in in Sioux Falls before I got married. It survived three children and is still with me. Who would have thought Our Lady would play a role in my life? When I went to college, I chose Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln, Nebraska, a United Methodist school. In the years that I was an undergrad there, I think I set foot in the church on that campus, or just off that campus, United Methodist Church, about mm, five times. I don't know, is that good? Go to church five times and all your years is in college? It's probably typical of a lot of kids, but that's what I did. Not proud of it now, but that's what I did at the time. Oh, I'd go when I'd go home for Christmas or Easter or whatever. Yeah, I knew it was expected that I would get up and go to, go to church. But I didn't connect. But you know where I would go? I didn't have a car. But if somebody was going to Mass, because we had some Catholic kids on campus, I'd go. In fact, I remember when my folks came down my freshman year, they said, shall we go to the Methodist Church for... Easter Sunday, and I said, you know, I'd really rather go to this really cool church in Lincoln, and it's called the Cathedral of the Risen Christ. And it's really, really cool, and I've only heard about it. I've never been there. Well, we went, and there is a great stained glass window there that my mother absolutely fell in love with. It's Jesus depicted as the gardener. 
If you think about it, remember Mary Magdalene thinks he's the gardener before she recognizes him as the Lord? My mother really liked that window. So college comes and goes. I don't really, I'm not really very spiritual. I think that happens to folks. You kind of fall away maybe as you're trying to feel your way. I went off to grad school in North Carolina. Didn't do much for a few years. And then I walked into the United Methodist Church in Chapel Hill one day and I thought, hmm, maybe I should start going to church again. I mean, after all, I'm in my 20s. Maybe I should. So I went through the membership classes. It's not RCIA or anything like that. I was already United Methodist, but I wasn't really a member anywhere, so I had to go through the membership classes because I couldn't transfer membership. Very nice pastor. Taught us a lot. It took maybe mm, six weeks, and then my you know, ticket was stamped. You're a member. First United Methodist, Chapel Hill. Joined the choir, um, but didn't really do a lot beyond that. But I was going again. I was going on Sunday mornings. A couple of years later, I was working, because you know when you're a grad student, you're very poor, and I had bills to pay. I was the secretary to the division chief of cardiology at the med center. And one of the other secretaries in the office was Catholic. And it kind of surprised me, because we're in North Carolina, and it's all Baptist down here. And she was African American. That really surprised me. But Sandy loved her faith. We didn't talk too much about it because we were not encouraged to talk about those things in the office at the med school. But I knew mass was important to her. She uh, wore a miraculous medal. This is not a miraculous medal, but more on that in a little bit. Uh, and I just thought, wow, what is it about a church that really isn't very big in this part of the country that would keep her going? And I hadn't been in a Catholic church since I'd graduated from college. I ended up moving back to South Dakota. My mother, in the meantime, when I was in high school, went on to get her master's in counseling at what was North American Baptist Seminary here in town. Right before she was to be graduated with her master's degree, she decided to go on and get her master's of divinity, and then was ordained a minister in the United Methodist Church. So as I moved back, my mother is an associate pastor here in town at Asbury, Asbury United Methodist, and that's where I started to attend church. And I helped out with youth group, because I was still kind of young. I was in my 20s. <laughs> and I didn't sing in the choir, but I would go to adult stuff if it was available, but it was kind of not very comfortable. They didn't really have a, a young adult thing going on. It was all young marrieds, and I was single. And so they were very nice, but there wasn't, you know, you just feel like a fifth wheel sometimes. So attending Asbury United Methodist was fine. It's what we did, because that's who we were. We were Methodist. Dad was still attending church with mom. He was, ahead, he was head of, as, she, as he called it, the Grushers, the greeters and ushers. He, was, he also taught, and you know, I give my dad a lot of credit, eighth grade Sunday school. If you've ever dealt with eighth graders, you must get your ticket stamped out of purgatory so fast. So if you, if you might need a little help, you might want to consider eighth grade next year if you know, you're thinking you might need a little help with that. I knew there were Catholic churches in town. 
Christ the King wasn't too far from Asbury. But I really didn't go. My husband asked me the other night, well, if you like the Catholic Church so much, how come you never attended? And I said, you know what, nobody ever asked me. I don't know that I ever really knew anybody who was Catholic in town. So I just didn't go. I wasn't sure when things, services were, and I wasn't as brave as I used to be. Well, then I met my husband. My sister was 19 at the time at Baylor University. She was lifeguarding at Westward Ho, and this guy came over to talk to her, not my husband, his best friend. So she tells me that she's dating this guy who's 26, and he went to O'Gorman, and I said, what? She said, yeah, I graduated in 78. And I said, oh, I know those guys. They are pretty, you bring him over. Mom and dad are gone. I was living at home, because I just moved back. She's home for this, you bring him over. I'm gonna meet this guy, because he's no good. He's 26, you're 19, Katie, forget it. So he comes over, nice guy, Jeff Randall, meets the dog. My folks have a Bashan named Charlie. Charlie got so excited, he peed all over Jeff's shoe. <laughs> and Jeff, bless his heart, mopped it up with a paper towel and didn't think twice about it. So Jeff and Katie go out. And she brings home pictures from a picnic they've had at their condo. A lot of friends over. And there's this really good-looking guy in one of the pictures. Dark hair and a mustache. And see, I went to Gone with the Wind when I was 13, so I've kind of had the Rhett Butler thing going on. Woo, he's cute. She said, yeah, he's got a girlfriend. I thought, yeah, figures. Figures, figures, figures. So I'm working. I'm back. I'm back here. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. What do I want to be when I grow up? I'm in my mid-20s. I really should figure it out. I'm working at, okay, at the time it was Sioux Valley. I'm an EKG tech, and I work in the stress lab. And it's New Year's Eve. Katie's back from Baylor, sophomore, you know. And she said, hey, Jeff Randall's having a party, and his roommate, Jeff Osterberg's going to be there, and you want to come? And I said, well, i got to go to another party. I work in 3 to 1130, and i got another party to go to, but okay. So I went to this other party, and then I went to the condo. It's probably 1.30 in the morning. Remember those days when you used to be able to do stuff like that? Can't do it anymore. Stay up till 2 a.m., I'm dead the next day. But at that time, I was young, I could do it. I went, and we met in the kitchen. Hi, I'm Katie's sister, Kim. Yeah, I'm Jeff. He didn't remember meeting me. That's what an impression I made that night in my little white uniform. So, so a few days later, Jeff Randall says, you know, you really ought to come over with Katie and cook us dinner. Really? <laughs> All right. So Katie and I came over and we made spaghetti, you know, because what do you make when you're single and you don't have a lot of money? Spaghetti, because it goes really, really far. So Jeff and I had a very nice time. My, my future husband, he didn't know that at the time, and I didn't really know either. We had a nice time. We chatted. We started dating. We dated for six months. And then he thought we were getting too serious, so he broke up with me. <laughs> I was devastated. I really was, because I was really falling pretty hard for him. Roughly two years go by, and through a mutual friend, we ended up finding out that we were both still single, although I love Todd. Todd Shade, he and Susan, great friends, knew him from Asbury United Methodist. 
he called on Jeff one day through insurance at his place of work. And Jeff mentioned something about having graduated from O'Gorman, and by this time I'm in nursing school. And Todd says, O'Gorman, I have a friend who's working out there right now. She's helping Sarah Speltz with coaching and turp and working with the place, Kim Schlanta. And Jeff says, well, how's she doing? And God bless Todd. You know what he said? He didn't say, well, she's sitting home dateless and desperate. <laughs> Thank you, Todd. He said, oh, man, she's got such a social life. She's just dating all the time. Not at all. I was dateless and desperate. So a few, you know, a few days go by. Todd remembers to tell me, because he's a guy, and he doesn't remember important stuff like that. Jeff had, in the meantime, while we were broken up, gotten engaged to someone else. It had broken off the previous November, several months. I was not the cause of the breakup. But I knew he wasn't dating anybody. I knew this engagement broke off. So one night, and I would never do this now, I cracked beverage, and I thought, what the heck, life's too short, so I called him. And we decided to have dinner after we talked. Found out his aunt had died and his uncle had died about a year after that. We were, like I said, we were broken up for about two years. And the night we first had dinner, getting back together, although he didn't know that, Easter vigil. All I knew at that time, it was the night before Easter. We had a nice time. Had a good dinner. Knew he was going to his aunt and uncle's for Easter the next day after Mass. And we started dating. We'd occasionally, you know, we really didn't go to church all that much. But he um, knew deep down in his soul, in his heart, that he would never be anything but Catholic. Because we talk about religion and faith. And I talked about how, you know, Catholic Church is pretty interesting. Kind of cool. He couldn't answer any of my questions. But I didn't let that stop me from really liking this guy. By 1990, I'd graduated from nursing school. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. By 1989, we had been dating since Easter Vigil of that year. It's December 23rd. In his folks' basement, he asked me to marry him. Isn't that romantic? We're in the basement, looking for stuff for his mom so we can take it to his aunt and uncle's for a Christmas party. But the reason he asked is because we'd been upstairs and his mother said, you know, I ran into Monsignor McEnany today and he says he hears you two are pretty serious and might be looking to set a wedding date. What do you have to tell us? <laughs> um, and he realized, you know, I never really have asked her, so I probably should. So he did. And that was December 23rd, 1989. So we end up deciding, we're going to get married at Christ the King. And I'm all for it. That's great. But I said, you know, I really don't want to do a full Mass because I don't want my family feeling left out when all of your family goes up to receive communion. And I didn't become Catholic before we were married because Monsignor McEnany, who did our, our marriage prep, and presided at the sacrament that we conferred on each other, said, you need to do this for you and not for Jeff or your future mother-in-law. Okay, I'm cool with that, yep. We go through all the premarital counseling. 
And I'm thinking, you want me to give up birth control? Why? Monsignor is explaining why and what this church teaches on life. And I'm really glad he didn't ask me about abortion at that time. Because you know what? I don't know that I could have said I was pro-life. I really don't think I could have. I was pretty adamantly pro-abortion, pro the choice of a woman to make. God works in mysterious ways. We were married on August 18, 1990, at Christ the King with Monsignor McEnany and Don Veglin, who was the pastor at the United Methodist Church in Brookings when I was growing up, helping Monsignor. He read scripture, uh, read the gospel, and pronounced the final blessing. And the cool thing about the final blessing is that it comes from numbers, um, or the one that we used at our wedding. And it was the final blessing that would be said to all of us in youth group as we were leaving. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that was the final blessing before we, our wedding, or our marriage ceremony was dismissed, if you will. I was working as a nurse, had been since May of that year when I graduated from nursing school at Augie. And I worked at McKinnon. And again, God works in funny ways. I had done my directed studies at Sioux Valley and fully intended to go to work in the ICU at Sioux Valley. But right before graduation, we had an opportunity to do a few weeks uh, in May, actually in April in May, on a different floor. And our instructor said, no, you really need to go somewhere other than Sioux Valley to do this because you're already planning to work there. So I went to McKinnon, to Three East, the oncology and the hospice floor, and spent four great weeks with some wonderful nurses learning about how to care for people who were dying, who were gravely ill, dealing with spiritual matters as well as physical matters. I started to see death as that entrance into life and became very, how do I want to say, open to that idea of praying for those who were dying. Remember, I'm still not Catholic, and I got five minutes to wrap it up, Chris is telling me. I'm getting the stink eye from the back there. Monsignor McEnany asked me that fall if I wanted to do RCIA. I kind of wanted to, but I really couldn't work my schedule out to be available every, every night. The following year, I was in CCU, and my boss at the time agreed to let me have every Tuesday night off to go to RCIA at Christ the King. I didn't quite know uh, where it would take me in RCIA. I knew I was open to it, and I knew I really wanted to go. And I do have to laugh. I love my husband dearly, but he's not the most outgoing social person. That's why he married me. I bring him out, and he kind of reins me in. But Tuesday night would roll around, and it's time for RCIA, and he'd be like, oh, do we have to go? And I'm like, come on, it'll be good. And once he got there, he was fine. It was just he had to put up a struggle every time we went. 
I uh, remember meeting with Sister Doris, who was the director of RCIA at the time, and she said, there are three things a lot of people have a problem with with the Catholic faith. Do you have any problems with these? Mary, and I'm like, well, no, I didn't get struck dead when I prayed a rosary at 17, so yeah, she's fine. She said, do you have a problem with confession? It's like, no, I suppose I probably need to do it, <laughs> but no. And then she said, purgatory, and I'm like, no, I'm all about a second chance. And she just kind of smiled and said, we'll talk more about that later. Now, in the meantime, my father had rediscovered his faith. He had come back to the Orthodox faith. He really never had a place to, to, to live his faith or to practice his faith, growing, you know, being in South Dakota. There's a Greek Orthodox church in town, but the thing about the Orthodox faith is, really, if you are not of that national origin, it's very hard to be comfortable there. And so Dad really never felt at home in the, the Greek church here. So I would take him, as I could, as, we, as I was married and with kids and all that, to the Antiochian church in Sioux City after 1997. Why 1997? Well, my grandmother, his mom, had moved out here in 88. She had Alzheimer's disease. We were just starting to figure this out. And by 1997, when she died, it was full-blown. She didn't really know any of us at all. In the process of Grandma's death, a friend at work who is Antiochian Orthodox from Iowa got her priest, Father Thomas Begley, up to Sioux Falls to meet my dad. And it was really Father Tom who helped my dad with his spiritual needs the last seven years of his life. And I'm very grateful for Father Thomas Begley and all he did in listening to my, hearing my father's confession and bringing him the Eucharist when dad was too ill to travel. Dad and I finally found common ground we had a lot of battles when I was growing up. I know I was not a very easy teenager. Um, and God rest his soul, he was very good to me, even when he was yelling at me. He was chastising me like any good father should. April 18th, 1992, while he and Mom were not present when I came into the church on Easter Vigil, I know he was praying for me. One of the nurse uh, specialists one of the critical care nurse specialists, Jeannie Schmansky, she's now Jeannie Anderson, was my sponsor. And for a gift, because remember, this is 1992, we don't have a catechism yet. She gave me this very lovely Catholic catechism by Father Hardin. And it is a great volume, and it has fabulous information, but it's not an official catechism. It's a local catechism, but it's not, you know, put out by the Catholic Church necessarily as an official one for the Universal Church. By the mid-90s, Jeff and I had tossed aside birth control. We were still pretty careful, because we didn't want 12 kids, but we did not contracept. And that was huge for me, to have thrown that away by the mid-90s. Um, 95 rolled around, 92, I had, we had Rachel in September, 95, we had Jordan in November. And we kind of thought maybe that would be it. And then July 4th, 2000, I find out I'm pregnant. Hmm. Well, how about that? Wasn't planning on that one. 
My husband's in the fireworks business. When he's shooting a show at the fairgrounds, that's not the day to tell him something he's not expecting to hear. So I kept it really quiet. He comes back and he leaves the next day for Omaha. He takes off for Omaha, he's gone three days. Can't tell him over the phone, wouldn't be right. He comes back, he tells me how stressed he is. He's got so much to do before we leave on vacation. Don't want to stress him further so I don't tell him. We go on vacation, I haven't told anybody. When you want an Osterberg family vacation with his entire family, there's a fair amount of beverage cracking going on. Okay, now how am I gonna do this? Because they're gonna notice something's up if I'm not cracking one. <sighs> Needless to say, I figured out a way to get around it. Let's just say that the planters around the cabin have a lot of beer in them. So I go out and pour a little and come back in. Yeah, I have a beverage, mm -hmm. just, it's good. Head to the bathroom, down the drain. Mm -hmm. Yep, drinking it kind of fast, I know. Mm -hmm. So we had Stephen in February of 2001. I'd love to say at that point, I was completely and fully Catholic. All I can say is that faith is a journey. I came into the church in 92. In 95, I was part of Renew right after Jordan in 96. And I read a book that I would say was my second part of my conversion. I could tell you I was Catholic, but I couldn't tell you why until I read Rome Sweet Home by Scott and Kimberly Hahn. And of course, as you know, he teaches at Franciscan in Steubenville. This is the book that articulated for me why I became Catholic. In 1997, I met some friends who helped me meet another priest named Father John Rader of our diocese, who answered a lot of questions, who helped me understand more about Marian devotion, who helped me um, grow in my faith, can I say I'm further along now in 2008 than I was in 97 and 2001, you bet. Am I where I want to be in my life? No. But I will tell you this. I pray the rosary now. And I don't think I'm going to get struck dead praying it, unless I'm hit by a car. But it's not going to be lightning unless I'm standing out there with a metal pole in my hand or a microphone. I really love the Chaplet of Divine Mercy. And I find it's probably easier for a Protestant to, or a former Protestant to be drawn to that because it is so very Christ-centered. I'm seeing the rosary as being Christ-centered now. I never used to. Not that I didn't think Christ wasn't part of it, but I really saw it as far more Marian than Christ-centered. Do I know where things are going to take me? No. Do I ever see myself leaving? Nope. I will always and only be Catholic. And I'm so very grateful for this faith. Thank you. Questions? Alita. <laughs> Who not only do I know well, but had both of my daughters at Christ the King. I did, and I have a question because I, I think I, I know your brother. Yes. Okay, and now tell us 
um, how many siblings you had, and is your brother Catholic? Yes. Okay. Okay. So if you could Alita tell wants, a little bit of that story. Okay, Alita wants to know I have how no many idea of it, so. how many siblings I have, and if my brother's Catholic. I have a younger brother, who is six four and a half. My little brother, and he is also a convert to the Catholic faith. And we have a sister, Katie, who's younger than both of us, who is evangelical. She and her husband attend a Bible church in Fort Worth, Texas. They're getting ready to move to uh, Maryland. But it is kind of interesting to get a United Methodist, a Russian Orthodox, or it used to be kind of dead, God rest his soul, is no longer with us, two Catholic converts, and a Bible Christian. <laughs> Woo, we had stew, didn't we? <laughs> Mark? When I asked him before he came into the church, I said, you know, as an engineer, I can understand completely why you would be drawn to the Catholic Church. You've got hierarchy, you've got rules, you've, you just, you know where you stand, man. And I said, why, why is it? And he goes, well, I think right now it's more for Peggy. And I said, no, dude, it's got to be for you. Why are you doing it? <sighs> Baptists are too touchy-feely. <laughs> that was his comment. And I can under, I, but I knew what he was saying. Because when you're in a, you can have some really strong religious experiences that are very emotion-filled and emotion-packed, but you don't spend your life on a mountaintop. You never spend all day, every day, at peak emotion. You couldn't do it. You have your highs, you have your lows, and then you have, like the church has, ordinary time where you just go about daily life. And Mark, I think, was drawn to a church that was very C-oriented, and if you've ever done the DISC communication style, C folks are your compliance folks, your accountants, your engineers. They like knowing what the rules are and how to follow them. Thank you very much, that's my brother for you. So yes, he and his wife also belong to Holy Spirit, and they have four boys. Yes, ma'am. You said um, several times as you were, you know, learning about the Catholic Church mm -hmm. and curious about it that they couldn't answer my questions. No one could answer my questions. Do you feel that, because as Catholics we're all called to evangelize, you I bet. think, but do you think that that's improved in our church and our faith that we are better able to answer people's questions, or do you think that we still have a long way to go as Catholic Christians. Okay, the question was, growing up there were a lot of people who couldn't answer my questions. Uh, are things better now? Do, you think do I think things are better now as far as people being able to answer questions, being able to better evangelize? Yes and no <laughs> is the answer. Yes, partly because I know how important it is and what I have learned and what I do. Um, no, because I look at the kids in my confirmation class who are O'Gorman kids, and if I start quizzing them, now I know they haven't had apologetics yet, but you dig further than a half inch deep, and they don't have answers for me. So this is a group that I'm sure could probably answer questions if somebody like me, <laughs> what do you mean? It's just. It's just a bread. It's just just a symbol. I bet you guys could explain to me. No, it's not, and this is why not. And we'd love to have you receive communion. So why don't you come to church with me and learn how to be a Catholic? 
I know there would be an invitation from this group. Really wasn't a lot in the 70s or the 80s. And I'm starting to show my age, aren't I? We can all get better at evangelizing. That's a never-ending thing. I don't think anybody's ever totally comfortable. We just have to let go and let God and do our very best. Thank you. Good question. Yes, ma'am. I think the Catholic Church is a very difficult church to evangelize because there's so many, there's so much to it. There's so many, there are so many rules and there's no possible way, I don't think, that we can remember all that. You know? I don't know. The church is complex, which is, I think, one of the greatest things about it. In 1992, I remember going up to Holy Family Bookstore, where the old convent used to be. Now they've got the, the gorgeous apartments up there by cathedral. And I bought a book by Father Fox, believe it or not, about Protestantism and Catholicism. And one of the things he said in that book was that Protestantism is a very simple melody, but the Catholic faith is like a symphony with its depth and its complexity, and that it takes close listening to hear all of the pieces and parts and how they're interwoven. I think one of the things that's really spoken to me about being Catholic is that it's not all in your mind, and it's not all in your heart, which is what, for me, was my Protestant faith. You get to use your body, too. You stand, you sit, you kneel. You sing, you fold your hands. We, the sacramentals are powerful because they're physical. We can see a candle. We can hold a rosary. We can wear a medal. And by the way, our Lady of Guadalupe, the patroness of the unborn. Keeping this one on until after the election for sure. Again, 25 years ago, I never would have worn it. But those sacramentals are what remind us is that we are not just emotional and spiritual beings. We are physical as well. That's part of our human nature. And we incorporate all of that nature when we worship, when we praise, when we pray. Well, at least we can. No, I don't think I'll ever know all the rules or all the things about the Catholic faith, but you know that's the cool thing about it. You, there's no end to it. It's so deep, it's so high, it's so wide. Even St. Thomas Aquinas didn't know it all, and he knew a lot more than I'll ever know. If you haven't read and this was a book Chris recommended to me a while back. I'll recommend two books for you. Letters to a Young Catholic by George Weigel. I heartily recommend it. It is um, many different chapters as he's writing and talking to a young Catholic about different subjects, one of which is about, you'll learn about Frank Perriter. And if you don't know Frank Perriter, read the book and you'll find out who he was and why he was so important to George Weigel. You'll find out about a, a Catholic parish in uh, Beaumont, Beaufort, South Carolina, and uh, how it changed and became a very vibrant, very orthodox, very wonderful 
Catholic Parish, one of the best books I've ever read. And I put it off for a long time, not just because he told me about it, but just because I get kind of, oh, I don't know if it's that good. Oh. And then what I'm reading right now, Rediscovering Catholicism by Matthew Kelly. Two excellent books. Rome Sweet Home by Scott Hahn. And I've probably read that 25 times and I just read it again a couple weeks ago. And I get something new from it every time. And it's his conversion story along with his wife into the Catholic Church from evangelical Protestantism. Have you ever read Alex Jones's conversion story? Anybody heard of Alex Jones from EWTN? Pentecostal preacher from Detroit? Became Catholic. And you know what he thought growing up? I love this. This made me chuckle. Well, you know, when he ta was taught in the Pentecostal church, the Romans killed Jesus. And then, you know, the Roman Catholics, they're part of that. <laughs> Reading that going, what? Oh, well. No, we weren't. Okay, good book. You're welcome.